Uh, we are in part seven of our Joshua series, and I entitled this morning's message, Ripple Effect. And I want to begin with a quote there on your handout sheet that Pastor Russ was just referring to. If you could look at that, the quote by Erwin McManus, he said this. He said, when God creates, he creates with relational integrity. Everything is connected and fits together. The idea that the sin of one man, meaning Adam, and one woman, meaning Eve, could send a disruption through the entire cosmos is an extraordinary description of the organic connection between all of nature. According to scripture, everything is connected and every action has or had at least some effect on the whole. So let's begin with a concept. Concepts that we are very familiar with, we are, I hope, very familiar that we are all interconnected somehow. Not in a weird, creepy way, but in a very practical way. Whether it's we are woven together by God through nature, and in that way we talk about ecosystems. Yeah? Everybody know what an ecosystem is? I mean, it's the whole idea that you mess with a spotted owl and it screws up something else, right? I mean, we've heard of this stuff growing up. Right. Also, you can't mess with the little salamander guy over here because then it's going to mess up this over here. Or you can't take away this bug because that animal eats that bug. Right. And it's this whole interconnected thing that it really affects everything else. Since we're part more of a global village now with the Internet and all the access to everybody else's lives, it allows us to see what effects really are created. For example, we've all heard now about the earthquake in Chile, right? 8.8, huge earthquake. What was weird is that the headline on the Yahoo page said, Hawaii dodges a bullet. Why? Because they were expecting that an earthquake in Chile was going to create a tsunami wave that would hit Hawaii. Now, you don't ever think of those two in the same sense. You don't think of South America being tied to Hawaii. However, we're all tied in. One effect on one side affects the other. Some other people, as they've been going through and examining this type of interconnectedness, they use phrases like ripple effect. That is the one that I chose. That's the whole idea. You drop a stone into the water and there's a ripple effect. You can see the ripples go outward. And it will reach all the way to the shore no matter where you drop that rock. But there's also, back in 1952, there was a science fiction story written by a man named Ray Bradbury. If you're familiar with him. Ray Bradbury wrote about how there's a concept that affects time travel. Now, he was trying to write science fiction, but he was, uh, he was mentioning that a butterfly batting its wings in one part of the world can affect a tornado in another part of the world. That is known as the butterfly effect. People that get involved in chaos theory or string theory, these really high-level uh, examinations of science, Use phrases like that when talking to people like us, right? Stuff that we can understand. And what they mean is small, tiny variations in one area lead to dramatic results in another area. Is all of that true? Yes, it is. Is it also true relationally? Yes, it is. For many of us, when we start getting down to our lives, 
We like to believe that we are autonomous, that what I do is all about me. It's got nothing to do with you. So get out of my space, right? Isn't that our attitude? All I need is don't you dare talk about what I can or cannot do with my life. It's my life. And we keep saying that. It's my life. It's my life. It's my life. No, it's not. It's our lives. Because what you do affects me. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's a direct result. The fact that you are not being proper in your marriage makes my job harder as a pastor, right? It could be as direct as that. It could be something else that very small nuances of compromise that you make in your life sends off a ripple effect through the church and people begin to carry that in their own lives and then compromise becomes much more mass. Some people would say, but you know what, that's... This whole idea of a corporate identity, that's so Old Testament, right? So old school. You're talking about how God worked with Israel. That's totally different than how he works now. The Old Testament, the way God dealt with Israel is a blessing and curse. What one member of the nation did, the whole was charged with, and then he would bless them if they did it right, curse them if they did it wrong. That's not the covenant I live under, Lance. You are absolutely correct. But Jesus and Paul began to describe the church as the body of Christ. Do you really think it's any different in the sense of how it affects us? The purpose of using the analogy of a body is that one part affects the whole. A toothache can make you ache all over. Would we agree? Infection in one part of your body can lead to the downward turn of all of it. Your heart is a very small portion of your body. Yet, if it stops, you're done. Right? Everything's done. So, we need to realize that it's just as much New Testament as it is Old Testament that what you do affects us. Now, it may not be in the sense of how the story works today, but we must apply it to our lives. The sin in your life affects me. The sin in my life affects you. And sometimes we don't even see how. It just does. Sometimes we just pick up stuff from each other without knowing that we're passing it on. I believe that we have a responsibility to not be foolish enough to assume that we are alone. And I think we need to be responsible enough to realize that we have a responsibility to live our lives knowing that we are impacting each other. Amen? Let's dive into Scripture. Uh, turn with me to Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Now, let's give a little recap here. Where were we last week? Well, last week we just finished this famous battle which was hardly a battle because God did everything, where all the walls fell down in Jericho and everybody went in and they wiped out everybody and God said before they walked in, this is my city, it's devoted to me, don't touch any of my stuff, kill everything, burn it all, and anything that's of value that you can't burn, I want you to bring into my storehouse but do not take any of it for yourselves. You will get all the rest of the battles throughout Canaan. You'll get all that plunder. This isn't plunder. This is my stuff. Don't touch it. If you touch it, I'm going to nail you to the wall. And he said it like a million times. All right? Well, 
what happens? Somebody touches God's stuff. That's a story today, right? Now, here's what I want you to challenge yourself with internally. It's the fill in the blank on your sheet. But before I give you the fill in the blank, I must correct a typo. Because it completely derails my whole thought. I would like you to change the word now to not. Very important. Cross out the W, put in a T. Now I can do it. Last night I didn't know there was a typo. And I went forward with all confidence and it derailed completely. Here we go. Here's the phrase. Do not take from God what is not yours. Not what is now yours. That's messed up. Do not take from God what is not yours. And here's the challenge. What has God claimed rights to in your life that you are not handling for him? You're keeping it as your own. Money, time, resources, glory, praise. What is it? Something in your life you know very well because you were bought at a price. Jesus Christ died for you. If you are a believer today, your life is no longer your own. He owns you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What is God having rights over in your life that you are considering your stuff? You're stealing from God. What is it? That's what we have to apply today. Let's dive into Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. We're just going to read the first verse. It's heavy enough. We'll pray for that and then we'll we'll go forward. Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. It says this. But, ooh, bad start. Well, yeah, but, so uh, even look at the last verse of the last chapter. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. That sounds awesome. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us walk through your word this morning. And we ask that you would open our eyes that we might change. Indeed, Lord, we are not reading about other people. We're reading about our own lives. We're reading about our own church. We're reading about our own families. God, we are doing these things. We are corporately responsible for violating your covenant. We are responsible for living selfishly. And we have ripped you off. We ask that you would forgive us. Give us courage, strength, and discernment to walk differently. In Jesus' name, amen. First three words, but the Israelites collectively as a group, this is going to wear on you. Why? Because we don't like that. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully. You're going to find out it's one guy. Everybody's busted because of one guy. You know, it's almost like that whole thing in gym class, right? Where one guy's not running hard enough, so everyone has to run again. Very similar to that. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully. They cheated. In regard to God's stuff, the devoted things. Achan, which most likely means troubler, which I always think is funny in the, in the Bible because they just name, whatever your name is, 
The story ends up following that. Jacob was a deceiver. He becomes what? A deceiver. If you name your kid Troubler, he's going to cause problems. Don't name your kid that. All right? Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. In other words, someone touched God's stuff. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. All of them. That's not good. That's bad. Israel is lumped in with one man's sin. Is that fair? We don't like it. Collectively, what if you found out that Bridgeway was being dramatically affected because of the sin of one person's life in this church? That bother you? Do you want to be so disconnected from everybody else that what they do does not affect you. Now, you don't have that option, but maybe you want that in your mind. Where you get to pick and choose everything that happens with you. But God is God, and God gets to make the rules. Right? As a matter of fact, what's fair is what God says. God designed Israel as a family of people who would demonstrate Him to the world. He said, I will walk among you. Therefore, what they do affects him to the world. Very similar to what he's done by indwelling his believers today. This is the first time in the land of Canaan that they're really going to mess up. And God's going to make a massive statement. He doesn't handle it this way every time. But he does the first time. And things get really, really ugly. Look at verse 2. Now, Joshua, our leader, the leader of Israel, the commander of their army. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho, where we were last time, to Ai, a city of Amorites. These are guys they are going to go try to beat up and take their stuff. Ai means the ruin. Now, nobody knows quite where it is today. There's all these arguments, but it's about... They know the area. It's about 10 to 15 miles northwest of Jericho, up in the hills. It's 1,700 feet above sea level. So they got to kind of go up and then go fight it up there. So when they run away, they're going to run downhill. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, which means house of wickedness, to the east of Bethel, which means house of God. Now, what's interesting is later on, Bethel's a big deal in the Bible. House of God is an important city. However, when they turned to wickedness, people nicknamed it Beth-Avon. And it went from house of God to house of wickedness. Has that been the case in your life, how you handle your body? Has it gone from house of God to house of evil? Based on what you do. Kind of an interesting question. And he told them, these spies, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. So here's the strategy. Remember on a map, when they sweep in, they're coming in in the middle of this big piece of land that we now know as Israel. They're coming in right in the middle of it. They crossed the Jordan River. They attacked the first city, Jericho. Now they're cutting straight across the middle, all the way to the uh, ocean on the other side, the sea. The Mediterranean Sea. As they split it across, they divide north from south. That's a strategy. Then they're going to attack the south. Then they'll attack the north. It's just how Joshua the strategist planned it. So they're heading across. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people are going to have to go up against the city. 
Send two, three thousand men to take it. Don't weary all the people, for only a few men are there. We find out later there's 12,000 people there, approximately 6,000 men. That's not a few. That's a lot. And later on when God issues a direction, he tells them to send the whole army. So even though that's not why they lost, they're lame spies. That's my only point. All right, moving on. So about 3,000 men went up, meaning up in elevation, to go attack. But they were routed. They got beat down. They were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. This is the first and only military defeat in all of the campaign of Canaan. You just saw it. 36 men lost their lives because of one man's decision. 36 families lost their dads, lost their husbands, lost their brothers because of one man's decision. That is a huge impact. This is needless death. This is unnecessary death because it wasn't supposed to go like this. And it derails everything. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. In other words, they chased them down to the rocky bluffs where they looked over the cliffs and they killed 36 of them there. At this, the hearts of the people, meaning the Israelites, melted and became like water. Boy, is that a reverse from last week. Last week, the bad guys' hearts melted like water. This week, our good guys' hearts melted like water. There's a lot of melting going on. Why? They went from confidence to confusion. They went from confidence to fear. What was the difference? They lost. Now, shouldn't you normally go, you know what? We win some, we lose some. All right, our spies were terrible. We didn't do it right. 36 people, as amazingly horrible as that is for those families, that's small collateral damage, and we're talking about thousands of people clashing swords and poking each other with sharp objects, right? So maybe... This is just, hey, you lose. So what? Go back, bring more guys, take it down. Why are they freaking out? Because what was the plan? The plan was, who's with them? God. And God doesn't lose. What does that suggest? That God's not with them. What happens if God's not with them? They just started out on a huge military campaign. If God is not with them, they will get annihilated. This is not about one battle. This is about the whole program. This is about the wheels flying off right at the beginning, and we have to stop everything. Because it's not going the way God said it would go. If all of a sudden, let's say that as we went through our lives in this church, we had all this evidence of the Holy Spirit being here. And all of a sudden, I could tell you clearly, the Holy Spirit is gone from this church. Would that make an impact? Might as well shut up shop, right? We're done. There's no point in doing this. That's how Joshua felt. Verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes. What's that? That's a sign of mourning. You rip your garments. 
he tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground as an act of reverence before the Ark of the Lord. That's the Ark of the Covenant, the gold box where God met with Joshua. He fell down before it on his face remaining there till evening and the elders of Israel did the same and they sprinkled dust on their heads that's another sign of mourning so they're all laid out flat before the ark of the covenant and it says they remain there till evening what does that suggest to you suggest to me that God let them stew in it and said nothing just let them lay there they're crying and weeping and mourning and, oh, this is so horrible. And God, why? Screaming out what? Nothing. Complete silence. Have you ever been in a place in your life where the wheels came off? Your immediate reaction is to scream and blame God, right? And you assume that if you yell at him, he's going to respond back. And he's supposed to tell you what he did wrong, right? Isn't that how we always think about it? And what does God do almost every time? Complete silence. You get nothing. Go ahead. Try it sometime. Just lay there and keep asking God, why? And then tell me if he tells you anything. Almost always nothing. And he lets them sit in it till evening. And they're devastated, right? It says, and Joshua said, verse 7, and he asked God three questions. Two are horrible. One is brilliant. Unfortunately, in my life, I would ask the first two and never the third. First one, Joshua said, ah, sovereign Lord, meaning ah, one in control. In other words, Lord, I know you're in control, so I'm about to ask you a question. Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. What does that sound like? Sounds like the whole old generation of Jews that wanted to go back to Egypt that God made die in the desert. And Joshua is the only one with Caleb that got out. In other words, he sounds exactly like all the people he used to make fun of. Right? I mean, he was the man of faith. He was the one that would go, what are you talking about going back to Egypt? We can do this. One loss. The possibility that God is not with him falls apart and says, God, why'd you do it? Did you hear him blame God? Why did you bring us here? Why did you hand us over to the Amorites? And God's like, excuse me, what's that? Did you just, are you blaming me? Why did you do this? He's immediately turned on everything. You know, this is so human. This is so realistic. This is what we do. I hope you understand we're looking at you and me, right? And it's interesting. I've been with so many men in ministry over the years where they get involved in apologetics and they fight for their faith and they're hardcore and women that will just go to the wall for what they believe in God. And then five years later, they're not even following the Lord. Complete overhaul. And I'm like, what in the world? You used to be so cocky. You used to be so arrogant about your stance in Christ. And you would look at other people that weren't following the Lord kind of down your nose at them. Oh, look at those people. They don't get it. And then you're there. This should be a reminder that we need to walk with humility. We need to understand we are one good day away from losing everything. 
by making really, really poor decisions. So he blames God right off the bat. Incredibly bad idea, in my opinion. However, I'm sure I've done it a million times. Why'd you do this? Why did you ruin everything? Question number two. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? In other words, God, I've lost all credibility because I told everybody that you were with us. I clearly lied to them. I put my name on the line. I put everything out there and you've blown the plan. Is that really what happened? But then, lest we think he's just whining, look at the next phrase. Why are the stakes so high? Verse 9, the Canaanites and all the other people of the country will hear about it, and they're going to surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. In other words, God, the only reason this whole plan was working is because they were scared of us. Now they're going to find out we just got routed by a really simple little town everybody's going to get their confidence back and we're going to lose. Why are you derailing the system? You told us to walk into confidence. You told us that you would be with us. You told us that we were going to win. And now we're losing. I don't get it. But then he comes to his senses and the true heart of Joshua arises in question number three, a question that I would suggest none of us have ever asked in our lives the way Joshua has. Question number three, what then will you do for your own great name? What's the real problem here? He said, God, do you understand how this makes you look? Deep down, Joshua knows that he's expendable. Joshua knows that it's not about Israel, it's about God. God, Joshua knows that if he dies, that's part of how it goes. He knows that he's a servant. He knows that he lives for the Lord. And whether he lives or he dies, it's glory to God. He's completely cool with that. But what he's not okay with is God's name getting smeared. What he's not okay with is God's name lowering in value. When everyone finds out that the great God lost a battle, he's going to look bad, and that crushes Joshua. Let me ask you this. Are any of us, I'm not, are any of us mature enough to ever cry over God's name losing glory? Now, we're too wrapped up in ourselves. No, it's all about how does it affect me and blah, 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 blah. When we see the name of God devalued in our society, right? Kind of like when everyone goes, oh, the divorce rate's the exact same in the church or even higher than it is outside or, or all the church people are more irritating than the non-believer, right? When you hear all this talk, we get mildly irritated because of how it looks on us. Do you get irritated because it makes God look bad? Does anyone cry over the idea that what we're trying to do by bringing glory to God's name isn't working? Does anyone cry over the idea that God is not more famous and more wonderfully praised in this world? Nah, that doesn't factor in our world, but it does in Joshua's, and that's why he's the leader. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. What are you doing on your face? Okay, that's a harsh response. It's, come on, buddy, what are we talking about? Get off your face. Why are you reacting that way? You're insulting me. Get off the floor. Very rough. Stand up. What are you doing? Really? You're going to sit here and cry and whine all the time. 
Oh, God, 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 why did you... Don't talk to me about me. I know what I'm doing. What are you doing? We're here because of you. We are here because of your people. Do not try to turn this around and blame this on me. Don't sit there and get all dramatic and religious on me. You blew it. I didn't blow it. Stand up. Right? And they're like, okay, right? They all kind of stand up, wipe off the tears, right? Israel has sinned. Period. All the other guys are like, I didn't sin. Did you sin? Did anybody else sin? Wait, oh, I bet you it was Bob. I know Bob sinned. He always sinned, right? Everybody's got an opinion. Israel has sinned. They have violated my agreement. He goes, was I not clear? Did I not tell you exactly what to do? If you do it my way, you win. If you don't do it my way, you lose. It's pretty simple, guys. I don't think this is rocket science. All right? I told you, follow me, obey me. You don't obey me, I will squish you. Right? I, don't, I mean, it's pretty obvious. And you're here whining. Oh, why? Because you're being idiots. That's why. It's pretty obvious. It says, Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They touched my stuff, Joshua. Did I not be clear with you? Don't touch my stuff. You touch my stuff. They have stolen from me. Stolen from God. They have lied in their cover-up. They have put them with their own possessions. They've integrated my stuff into their lives. As if now it's theirs. No, it is not theirs. It is mine. Well, I hope we're hearing that this is what we are doing in our lives. Right? God gives you brains. God gives you money. God gives you a family. God gives you glory. And everyone tells you how great you are. And you integrate it into your life as if it's yours. He's like, actually, that's my stuff. Stop taking it. That's my stuff. But now we're all normal about it. Oh, you know what? Maybe I'll give God some stuff. What? Oh, no, you will not give God some stuff. You mean allow him to have what's already his? Oh, you're going to take some of his stuff. That's different. Whole different ballgame. They've stolen, they've lied, they put them with their own possessions. That's why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. You're unprotected. You know it. I'm not backing you up on this one. And you guys got shut down. How's that feel? You know what? You're not going to learn unless I do it a different way. Look at the next phrase. I will not be with you anymore. That's massive. I will not be with you anymore unless, here's the contingency, unless you destroy whatever among you is mine, devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Therefore, Joshua would stop and go, didn't we just do that a week ago? Didn't we do the whole consecration thing right before the Jericho thing? He goes, yeah, you guys got all cleaned up, and then you went around and made yourself all messy again. Go get cleaned up again. We're doing this all over. Let's re-rack. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In other words, root it out or it'll kill you. Because I'm not standing with you. Your bodyguard is off duty. I'm out. You stole my stuff. We're not doing this anymore. Now, this should strike fear into the hearts of everyone. But do we live under this covenant today? 
Is it true that when you sin, God pulls all his protection off you? No. No, it is not true. That's how it was in the Old Covenant. And even then, God had such extreme mercy. Only every once in a while would he do something dramatic like this. However, he was very clear on the rules. Let me ask you a question. Which covenant do you like better? Old or new? Right, because I hear this a lot. You know, they got all the miracles and they got all the cool stuff and God would talk to them. God never talks to me. All I do is pray, 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 and my room is all silent. And then they always knew what to expect. They knew the exact rules, and I wish I had more structure. Now it's all faith. Ooh, do you believe enough? Do you love Jesus? I don't know if I love Jesus, right? Uh, we don't like the messiness of it. We don't like the relational aspect. You know what? Just give me my hoops to jump through. I'll jump through the hoops. Just tell me I'm in, right? Are we good? What covenant do you want? You, you want the old one? The old one where you sin, you die. Is that the one you want? Because I'll tell you this. Our church would be really small. <laughs> I wouldn't be the pastor. <laughs> Do you understand that when Jesus died, it changed everything? Do you understand that's what he meant? When we take communion, we talk about the new covenant, right? It changed everything. We don't live on a blessing and curse concept. We don't, believe, we don't live in a God will protect you if you're a good guy. God won't protect you if you're a bad guy. We live under so much intense mercy and grace lavished on us, the Bible says. So that it covers over our sin. Praise the Lord. That's the only reason we can stand at all. I think we're in a good place. I think the indwelling Holy Spirit is extraordinary. And I think we should be thankful and grateful every day of our lives. He said this is how it's going to work. In the morning... Present yourselves tribe by tribe. How many tribes are there in Israel? Twelve. Put yourself in twelve groups. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. What's a clan? It's a group of families. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. The family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. I will whittle it down until the guilty is exposed. He who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire. Along with what? All that belongs to him. Those are high stakes. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. God's a little mad, right? So now he's going to whittle it down. He's going to start cutting it down from 12 and then he breaks that into clans and then into families and then into people. This is going to create tremendous anxiety. How is God going to whittle it down? Is God going to audibly tell Joshua that one, that one, that one, that one? That's how we picture it. I don't think that's how it worked. As a matter of fact, there's a couple different guesses on it, but these are the general ideas. Most scholars believe that because Joshua had access to the Ark of the Covenant, he likely had what the priests used, which was called the Urim and the Thummim. Those were in the pocket of the priest's robe. There were two gems shaped into uh, orbs or balls and one was black one was white and they would that we don't know exactly what they were like because we don't have any of them in existence and they would use them as a no and yes 
right? So they would put them together and they would say, Lord, is this how it's supposed to go? Pull out the ball. Hey, no. It was a random chance to allow God to intervene in their decision making. And a lot of major decisions were made this way. It's like flipping a coin, right? So either they used the priestly robe and did that, or they did some version of the layman's of that, which is casting lots. Casting lots is the poor man's way, which is basically you either have marked stones that you throw out, or it's kind of like throwing dice, or you have pieces of pottery that you draw out of a jar and draw names they would find some way to implement the element of chance. That's how they would determine God's will through prayer. And you go, that's radical. Really, they did that stuff? The last recording is in the book of Acts. When did they do that in the book of Acts? Anybody remember that? Judas commits suicide because, what? He defied Christ. They now have an open spot in the 12 apostles. How did they select? There was two guys right? They selected Matthias out of what? Casting lots. God, which one do you want? And baby needs a new pair of shoes. <laughs> Matthias like, yes. The other guy's like, ah, oh. what if we sorted sin this way in Bridgeway? Right? I mean, I want you to, I want you to picture two, two elements. One have you ever been to a charismatic service where the speaker says that they have words of knowledge? Anybody know what a word of knowledge is? Word of knowledge is when they say that the Holy Spirit has told them something. And they walk around in the room and they say, someone is cheating on their wife. And they literally walk around looking. And you're like, oh my gosh. Why is he getting near me? Right? You know you haven't cheated on your wife, but you're like, somehow he thinks you did. Right? And he walks around and then he'll say, well, some of you, you know what? Right now, someone's really got some issues and you know what? You've been drinking a lot and he walks near you. Okay. It's this whole paranoia thing, right? And cause he know, you know that, oh my gosh, the Holy spirit knows everything that's going on in my life. What if he comes over and talks to me and then he'll say, it's in this general area, right? <laughs> All right. I want you to keep that in, in mind along with this. Let's say I said the decisions that someone in this room made cost the lives of 36 men. And God will not bless our ministry until you are removed. So we're going to do this real simply. You ready to go? Yeah, right. Thank you very much. Yeah. He already took one for the team. I appreciate that. And this is how we're going to do it. And then I have everyone rise, and I said, if you live in Placer County, remain standing. Everyone else, sit down. If you live in the city of Rockland, remain standing. Everyone else, sit down. If you live on the east side of the city, remain standing. Everyone else, sit down. And I start whittling it down to your neighborhood. Imagine if I did that, and I called you out in front of everyone. And I said, you have shut down what God is doing in our church. That's what we're about to face. Okay, pretty big deal. Huh? Aren't we glad we don't do that? Early the next morning, which means they all had to sleep on it. Imagine that one. Joshua had Israel come forward, and I assume he told him why. 
by tribes and Judah was taken. Why is that important? Because that's the kingly tribe. That's the royal tribe. That's Jesus's line, right? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Both Mary and Joseph's family lineage come from Judah. All right. Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward and he took the Zerahites. That's one of Judah and Tamar's. Don't read that story to your kids. That's one of their twin sons. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah was taken. Imagine all the gasps in the crowd. That's the guy that did it. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, what a weird way to start it out. Here's what I think you need to understand about Joshua. This is not a personal vendetta. As strong as Joshua is a leader and as vicious as he believes about God, listen to how he treats this guy. He's not on a personal mission to destroy this guy. He literally has a gentle, strong spirit and he calls him my son. He knows darn well this guy is under his care. He knows that his leadership is reflected in this man. And he has compassion, my son. Give glory to the Lord, meaning make God look good here, buddy. You already ruined it. The God of Israel, that's our God, Achan. And give him the praise, lift up his name. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. All right, now let's say we did all that narrowing down and whittling down. I finally highlighted you and had you stand on stage and I said, we need to talk about your sin. How would you react to that? Would you confess or would you cover up? I'm always shocked when people come clean because it's so incredibly hard to do. This guy comes clean. As much as we don't like what he did, you got to admit this guy came clean. Now he's kind of forced to. He could have went, I did it earlier, as opposed to waiting for the drama. Achan replied, it is true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, stop. What did you see? Ah, there's your first mistake. What is it again? Well, it's plunder. It's the spoils of war. No, it's not. You mean when you saw God's stuff? Right, when I saw God's stuff. Okay, just being clear. Okay, let's make it applicable. You ready? Guys, those of you that are out in the dating circuit, yeah? You're dating young ladies, and you're thrashing hearts all over the place. This is what you say. Well, as I was dating a a bunch of these different girls, God goes, stop. What'd you say? When I was dating a bunch of these girls, uh, no, you weren't. You were dating my daughters. Go ahead. Anyway, as I was dating these girls, my daughters, when I was dating your daughters, what'd you do? Oh, see, it changes the conversation. I just want to make sure that we had the right terminology. Right. Treat him with respect. Yeah? He says, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia that was likely carried all the way from Egypt, 200 shekels of silver. Now that is five pounds of silver. I went online yesterday and got the price of silver in our day. And it's uh, 1300 bucks. And I saw a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. That's 11 and a quarter pounds of gold. In our day, that's $201,240. That means over 200 grand. 
just got lifted from God's stuff. Would it have mattered if it was only a dollar? No. I coveted them. I saw. I coveted them. And I took them. And they are hidden in the ground inside my tent with a silver underneath. See, God already told Joshua, you've already covered up and hid them. God knows. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and they spread them out before the Lord's before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all of Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters. Uh Oh, stakes just went up again. His cattle, his donkeys and his sheep, little sheep are like, where are we going? His tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. What's Achor mean? It's a lot like Achan. It means trouble. You're going to the valley of trouble. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord's going to bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they stoned the rest, meaning his family and animals, they burned them. Wow. Over Achan, they heaped a large pile of rocks as a memorial, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Let me ask you a question. Do you wrestle with the idea that his kids died for this? The whole community killed them by stoning. Everybody know what stoning is? You find a very large rock and you throw it at someone's head. That's stoning. Usually you miss, but when everybody's throwing, you get hit, you fall down. They keep throwing till you die. That's stoning. Right? All the sheep, cattle, donkeys, everybody. Kids, everybody dies. Why? Now, it's interesting. His wife is not mentioned. Either because she was not an accomplice in this, or she was gone by this time. But here's what's interesting. In Deuteronomy, there is a law that God wrote down that children cannot die for the sins of their father. So why were they killed? Most scholars believe because of that law, they were direct accomplices in the issue. They were not just because family. They were involved, either in the hiding of it, the cover-up, or the lying about it. They died for their own sin. Now, I still think that the sheep didn't do anything wrong, the donkeys didn't do anything wrong, or the cows. And they needed an attorney. They needed due process. Right? They're stoned and they're burned. Why were they burned? To remove the contagion of sin. Sin spreads. Just like it's doing in your life, in my life, and in this church. Sin spreads. And God does radical things to eliminate sin from our lives. One last thing I want to point out before we move on and close the service is I want to ask you, is it fair for Achan to die for his sin? Right Now, if we talk about fairness, 36 men died because of his choices. So let's go. Let's go with fair, right? You killed 36 guys. You died. Still not fair. I should kill you 36 times. Right? Can't do that. Life for a life. Yeah. Seems pretty fair. But with his stoning, God just made... A dramatic statement about what he's doing in Canaan. 
You see, we're going to talk about the ethics of this holy war where they're going around wiping everybody out. And everyone goes, oh, I have a hard time with that. Do you understand what God just said? What did God just say by killing one of his own kids in Achan? Is it's not about the Jews. This is not a campaign where the Jews get to go get whatever they want. This is not about favoritism. I like the Jews. I don't like those guys. So we're going to go let them kill everybody. That's not what's happening here. As a matter of fact, last story, who got saved? A Canaanite, Rahab. She got saved and a Jew got killed. This is not about favoritism. This is about God's judgment. And he tells his own kids, don't you think I won't do the same thing to you? Do not think that just because you're my kids, you can get away with whatever you want to do. And somehow I'm going to go decimate the rest of the world and give you their stuff. This isn't about you. This is about my name. I've been working with these people groups for 400 years. I love them desperately and I want them to come to me. They have resisted me and I'm going to wipe them out and I'm using you to do it. But don't make any mistake in your mind that it's favoritism. Because if you step out of line, I will kill you just as fast as I will kill them. That's different. When we start talking about the ethical conquests of war, I want you to remember this is not a war. This is judgment. And judgment has different rules. We close with this thought. What sin is going on in your life that's kneecapping you? That's knocking you out of the mix. And has God been tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I need you to clear that out. And you're going, you know what? I'm not going to do it. He said, you know what? Do I need to bring that out in the light? You guys, I have lived so many times with a fear that all my sin will become known. Because I know that God knows it. I know that God can expose it at any moment. Under God's grace and mercy, he has not up to this point. But I've always felt that stirring in my spirit of going, Lance, you need to deal with that stuff before we go public. The only way I would ever go public with you is if we can't do it another way. God is not interested in embarrassing his children. God is not interested in humiliating his children. But God is interested in you growing. And he's not interested in leaving you the way you are. So may we all take a word of warning, a shot over the bow. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you do. Is there something holding you back? Not in a blessing, cursing way, but in a way that God cannot do all that he wants in you. That's our challenge. Let's close. Heavenly Father, certainly in our lives there are things that we are doing habitually that ruin your name quite frankly. Um, We've been stealing stuff that belongs to you. We have robbed God. We have been selfish. And we as a church, Lord, as Bridgeway, have sinned. We collectively as a family ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would guide us out of it, that you'd give us the strength and understanding and the courage and the discernment to leave it that we might be a holy people and that you might use us powerfully. We submit our lives to you as living sacrifices. In Jesus' name, amen.